My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just it entertain, but to teach and educate. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. With earnings season kicking off today, a day where the Dow gained 143 points, that's to be advanced 0.35%. NASDAQ inched up 0.04%. I think it's time for a primer, a primer on what makes stocks go higher. To put it simply, if you want your stock to go up, you need to beat the expectations. In practice, it's a little more complicated than that. So let me give you an iconic example. Let me give you PepsiCo, a household name that also happened to be the biggest winner in the S&P 500 today, up nearly 5%. PepsiCo's CEO, Ingenui, has done remarkable work, taking a company that seemed ill-suited to this new era of health and wellness and transforming it into a powerhouse of great tasting, Good for you and better for you options, the latter two representing half of their merchandise. That combination has consistently put PepsiCo at the top of the consumer packaged goods heap. You may remember, uh, actually you probably forgot, but initially I was a skeptic. I once said on air that I had held a sleepover party for my daughter's swim team and they didn't bother to eat the Doritos that I bought for them. I thought the stock was in real trouble. It wasn't long before I heard from the company, though, telling me about all the new snack brands they'd invented that the kids would have loved because they're natural and healthy, or at least healthier than Doritos. I just hadn't done enough homework. In short, they re-educated me a decade ago. Since then, I've been astonished at the company's innovation in free-to-lay snacks and beverages, including carbonated soda, OJ, and water and how much they've meant to its bottom line. For years now, I've been a card-carrying member of the PepsiCo party. However, lately, the whole consumer packaged goods group has been under tremendous pressure. You've got rising competition from a plethora of ultra-competitive smaller players. You've got escalating raw costs. You've got the changing tastes of millennials and an aversion to what we call the center of the supermarket. For ages, PepsiCo managed to remain above the fray, delivering earnings beat after earnings beat, which propelled the stock ever higher. Recently, though, even PepsiCo has fallen victim to the malaise. In fact, the company actually whiffed on a couple of quarters, and you saw the stock plummet from $122 all the way down to $96. And that's when the so-called analyst community actually started turning on the company. I say so-called because this noisy, discordant group is more like a pack of jackals than anything resembling a community when they perceive a long-term downtrend unfolding. Still going into this latest quarter, the stock had rallied back from that hideous $96 level all the way to 109 And that's where some of these analysts, without naming names, decided to jump ship and started squawking about potential disappointments and shortfalls. We began to hear that Gatorade, wow, the growth engine, had suddenly started slipping badly. Then we got rumbling costs that rumbling uh, calls that the costs had escalated. Aluminum tariffs were going to hit PepsiCo. <laughs> well, think about all those cans. Escalating gasoline prices would slam them, as would the rising wages of truck drivers needed to take the company's product to the stores. On top of that, we started hearing about a rejuvenated Coca-Cola, a pretty much dormant company that had gotten more creative and aggressive in taking shelf space and market share of late. We know Coca-Cola and PepsiCo have fought each other endlessly in the soda aisle. It's like something out of the Peloponnesian War. In recent years, though, a relative truce had broken out, allowing both companies to make more money than we'd expected. 
That all ended last year when James Quincy took the helm of Coca-Cola and really went after PepsiCo with everything he had, which was caught flat-footed as the war picked up again. That gave Coca-Cola stock, KO, or knockout as we call it, a technical knockout of sorts. And it looked like PepsiCo was down for the count. Didn't matter that Pep said it would turn on the advertising jets this quarter, start to grow the business, take back market share. The analysts had lost faith. They figured the company... A goner. Their negativity reached a crescendo in the past four days when we heard the dreaded prediction of a shortfall and we braced ourselves for the stock to plunge from 109 all the way back to the 96 level where it had previously bottomed. Some of the best analysts really went out of their way to distance themselves, like the one wag who put out a piece saying, we're not feeling so bubbly about Pep's QT. Q2 fundamentals with the same spelling as the Drake bubbly. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that kind of passes for what uh, is analyst humor. Hmm, hoo-ha. <laughs> and then it happened. This morning, PepsiCo reported an absolute stunner of a blowout. It crushed the numbers. Organic growth 2.6%, large for packaged good company, instead of the 2.2% people expecting. The company earned a buck 61. The street was looking for a buck 53. Now, numbers aren't always what they seem. Sometimes there's one-time earnings, gains. Other times, the company may have benefited from an unforeseen tax break or currency fluctuations. Nope, this was a Mr. Clean beat, a number that was simply better than expected. How did PepsiCo do it? Well, first, Frito-Lay really shot the lights out with 5% core growth, the equivalent of a 500-foot drive that broke the actual lights as it soared out of the stadium. Gatorade didn't need any aid. The introduction of Gatorade Zero quickly produced astonishing results, as did the entire zero-sugar portfolio. How good? As the incredibly non-promotional Nui exclaimed, and I quote, I hate to use the word flying off the shelves, but it's doing exceedingly well, end quote. Mountain Dew came on strong. International, it gave you the growth you'd expect only from a turbocharged small cap company. Frito-Lay chips were almost as hot as the chips from semiconductor great NVIDIA. Yeah, the one I named my dog after. It doesn't stop there. Those raw costs easily eaten. The rival of Coca-Cola, just like I told you, PepsiCo upped its spending in the previous quarter and really came on strong, reclaiming market share and growth. Newey said that she, quote, maniacally focused on the returns from that ad spending. Best of all, PepsiCo's stock had attracted a raft of short sellers going into the quarter, people betting that they could cash in on an instant decline. Instead, they heard the two words short sellers fear most sequential improvement, as in each month was better than the previous one during the quarter. And the improvements continued into this new quarter, which is benefiting from a heat wave. In other words, the analysts need to raise their estimates, given that the company's trajectory is getting better and better and better. Or as I'd like to see these, some of these jocular analysts right tomorrow, I bet you can't eat just one. Oops, no, I bet you can't beat just one. As in, I think PepsiCo now beats quarter after quarter after quarter for the rest of the year. Andrew Nui has built a company to last, attracting the best and brightest to her business with a commitment to sustainability and environmental progress. Here's how she put it. I want to quote it because I think it's why they're getting such strong, great people. And I quote, looking ahead, we will continue viewing our work through both a microscope and a telescope, focusing on the most granular details, grams of saturated fat, parts per billion of greenhouse gas, the number of women in management roles, as well as the larger ambition of building a business that acts in accordance with our values. Each of us striving to do what's right for the company and what is right for our communities, because at the end of the day, there is no separating the two. She's true to her word. Although there's one community that's been left behind, the analyst community, part of which is now in tatters after they called for a shortfall, instead got these blockbuster, better-than-expected numbers. Here's the bottom line. When you go into a quarter with great expectations, they can produce a Dickensian tale of woe. 
but with lousy expectations. A well-run company like PepsiCo can deliver a good quarter that produces gigantic gains, the biggest in seven years, with a worthy coda. Congratulations, Indra, on a fabulous quarter. Let's go to Chad in Missouri. Chad. Jim, how's it going? Real good. How about you, Chad? Not too bad. Hey, i got a question. Uh, Raleigh Automotive stock, uh, it's at an all-time high right now. they got 5,100 locations. They're growing. They had a revenue of $9 billion for 2017. They also just expanded into the Northeast when they acquired Bond Automotive. Amazon does not seem to be slowing O'Reilly down because Amazon can't deliver same-day parts, nor do they offer a labor reimbursement for failed parts to professional customers. My question is, is now a good time to buy O'Reilly stock? Chad, I think this stock has had a major, major move. I actually would prefer you to be in AutoZone at this point, AZO, where the buyback is screwed and the last quarter was strong, and I think it's still pretty much undervalued. Orly has had a magnificent run, though. That's a real good call. Joel, Massachusetts, Joel. Jim, thank you for your insight and passion for the on Tyson. Their stock has been horrible for the last six months. I grew up in the meatpacking industry, and there's no better run poultry company than Tyson or their beef pork division, IBP. They're the best in class. What's going on? All right. Well, look, people view it as a commodity. The last quarter was not that great. Look, I totally agree with you, Joel. We are in a market that is gripped by short-term concerns. But that last quarter, even by their own admission, Tyson just failed to deliver. And there's so many others that are thinking good shape that I cannot recommend that stock. Let's go to Pooja in Illinois, please. Pooja. Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Quite welcome. I've been reading your book, Getting Rich Carefully, and trying to put those rules into practice. My question is around Accenture, ACN. It has a great balance sheet, huge cash flow, and, you know, great earnings. I ended up, And it is at its 52-week high. I right. want to know, is it the right time to invest in this, given both micro and macro factors? Right. Pooja, I, think that, I think the long-term situation is terrific there. I would buy half now. Now, remember, they just reported a quarter. The stock sold off. In the last four quarters, the stock sold off almost immediately after the quarter's reported and gave you the best opportunity. So I put some on now, and then I wait, although you will have to wait a few months because it just reported. Okay. Uh, Wall Street's all about expectations. And PepsiCo? The company crushed them. Oh, man, money tonight. Allergan has seen some bumps along the road, but could it be ready to turn investors' frowns upside down? I'm going off the charts to find out if it's ready to break out. Then, I always say I have the smartest audience in television. Thanks to a fellow Crane American, I'm I, a company that's up nearly 30% over the past year. You don't want to miss it. And oil prices are surging. But just how high can they go? I'm sitting with the CEO of Core Labs, who makes a bold call. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. How can you tell when a long-suffering dog of a stock might at long last be ready to bottom? That's the question we need to ask about Allergan. AGN, the once huge Kramer fave drug company that spent the last three years getting 
pulverized. Allergan is a first-class medical aesthetics business, think Botox, and a host of other products that can make you seem younger and better looking, along with more traditional medicines for eye care, skin care, and the digestive tract, as well as, most importantly, the central nervous system. But the stock has been a terrible performer. little candor here. Not that the rest of the show isn't candid, but really, listen to this. We wrote Allergan down from my charitable trust before finally giving up on it and selling the position. Just too hard, too many problems. Not enough catalyst to offset all the negatives. We took a big loss. What can I say? You have to own your losses, right? You got to own up to them on the show if you're going to talk about your gains. But even if I'm wary of the fundamentals, it turns out that the technicals may be telling a different story. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Tim Collins, a brilliant technician, and my colleague at RealMoney.com to get a better read on where Allergan the stock might be headed, even as it's painful for me to even think about this stock on the show. The House of Pain. First of all, let's be clear. In the last two months, this stock has started rebounding and rebounding like crazy. It's up a quick 33 points from its low. According to Collins, Allergan just needed a little time to iron the wrinkles out, a Botox-like injection to smooth out the path for the bulls to follow. Or to put it another way, this could be a situation where beauty is in the the eye of the beholder. And as far as Collins is concerned, the charts are starting to look downright pretty. At the very least, he thinks they're showing some bullish signs that might eventually result in a non-hideous picture. Quite a change. So let's start with Allergan's weekly chart, okay? As brutal as this decline looks, with Allergan stock plunging from the 250s last summer down to 142 earlier this spring, you're only looking at the latest leg of the downturn. In truth, Allergan has been a total house of pain since it's been an apartment of pain since 2015. When it was trading in the 330s near its peak, I'm not tall enough anymore to reach where it would have been. But Collins notes that 2018 has delivered a different kind of pattern here. So far this year, what we've seen is Allergan stock is having a wedge formation within a wedge formation. New term for us. Kind of unusual. But here's what this double wedge means. And that's the wedge and then the bigger wedge. While Allergan's had a consistent floor of support in the 140s to 150s, the ceiling of resistance has changed. The stock broke out above the upper end of the smaller wedge right here, okay? Uh, That was last month. Now it's broken out above the larger wedge, too. That's right here. That's key for him. In short, Allergan has burst through not one but two ceilings of resistance. And Collins thinks that changes the game. From these levels, he believes Allergan has a clear path higher for at least the next 10 points. So we could get to 186 without much difficulty. Even better, he now sees three floors of support. There's one at 174. Okay, just a couple of bucks below where the stock is. Then there's one at 162. And then the third one is at 155. At the same time, Collins only sees one ceiling of resistance possibly holding us back, the 2018 high in the mid-180s, okay? And once that ceiling is breached, we could have smooth sailing right into the 200s. What else? Alvin just made what technicians call a bullish crossover, okay? And that's where the 10-week moving average... See, 10 and 20. 10-week moving average, uh, it, it moves above, well, anyway, here, it's the blue line, okay, gets crossed by the red line. It's probably the easiest way. The 10-week goes over the 20. Uh, this kind of crossover is often a sign that a stock is ready to run. Or check out the full stochastic indicator. That's the STO at the bottom. It's a momentum indicator that helps us gauge when a stock is overbought or oversold. In recent months, the indicator started hitting new high after new high, even before the stock began to rally. So it was a nice premonition there. You even got an inverse head and shoulders. 
that's within the full stochastics, which is swiftly followed by a big move higher. Collins says this could potentially propel the stock much higher from here, although it's important to note that the stock is very close to reaching overbought levels. Overbought would be right here. Okay. Put it all together, and he believes there's a real chance that Allergan could make a return to the 200s in the next six to eight months. Worst case scenario, Collins says it's headed, well, back to the 160s. Okay, put this in perspective. We need to take a closer look at Allergan's daily chart. So we're going to go to a daily. Okay, again, we got a bullish moving average crossover. You can see that. That's the blue crossing over the red. On top of that, the stock has also made a cup and handle pattern. That's this right here, which looks a little like a little cup-shaped bottom next to, well, a handle, where the stock trades sideways for a period. Bizarrely, this time the handle came before the cup. It's usually the other way around. As Colin sees it, the short term, we can't expect much more from Allergan than a move to 185 because the recent run has been pretty much straight up. Still, he thinks we've got a floor of support here at 168 from the backwards cup and handle. This is a very reliable pattern for up stock. Now take a look at the bottom of the chart. We've got a new tool that we've never said or talked about on the show. It's called the Shande Trend Meter. This is a momentum gauge that combines multiple different indicators, the Bollinger Bands, the Relative Strength Index, or RSI, price channels, price changes, and standard deviations across six time frames. It then puts all the stuff in a single score for the sake of simplicity. According to the Shonday Trend Meter, CTM, Allergan is exhibiting a kind of strength we haven't seen since the stock was trading in the $200 level. That's a major change of character compared to the bearish action from the past year that befuddled me. This is the kind of thing someone like Collins wants to see when he's looking for proof of a trend reversal. So the charts are telling us that Allergan may have finally bottomed here, that the risk reward, just to be clear from all this, is 10 down and 25 up. And that is just a dream. Here's the thing. I think we need to be skeptical because this is a situation where I think the charts may possibly disagree with the fundamentals. A lot of people have been burned by Allergan, including yours truly. I see some major competitive threats to its main drug, Botox, and I'm concerned that it's got real risks as we get close to its major patent expirations. Recent guest for Vance Therapeutics is working on a generic challenger to Botox, which to me seems very credible. And Allergan lost a major patent protection case for Restasis. That was a $1.4 billion dry eye drug. I know they got a ton of potential products in the pipeline, especially a very exciting migraine pill. But these patent expirations are a huge problem for drug companies. Just look at the stock of Celgene. That's, it's been put through the meat grinder because of upcoming, pat, uh, upcoming patent issues with its number one drug, Revlimid. Remember, years ago, Allergan was supposed to be sold to Pfizer at much higher levels, and that deal fell apart courtesy of the Treasury Department. This stock has been one disappointment after another for years. So I don't want you to get your hopes up. I like Brent Saunders, the CEO, a ton. I am pulling for him. But this show is about making money, not about making friends. Bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Tim Collins suggest that Allergan may be ready to roar here. I think the fundamentals tell you to be a little bit skeptical. To me, they're saying you need to be careful with this kind of challenge pharmaceutical company. But I accept that Allergan stock was overly punished and can continue to rally in the absence of any new negatives. Stick with Kramer. allow me to introduce you to the hottest financial technology company you've never heard of, my old buddy pal friend Jack Daniels. I'm sorry, Jack Henry, Jack Henry and Associates, or JKHY for you home gamers. Last Thursday, we got a call about this one from Carrie in the land of enchantment, New Mexico. And while I needed to do some homework, what can I say? It turns out that Carrie's got some genuine horse sense. 
Ah. Now that I've had some time to brush up on what Jack Henry's been up lately, let me tell you something. I can safely say that this stock is definitely worth owning. Bye, bye, bye! Although given its monster recent run-up, the darn thing is less than a buck off its all-time high, you might want to wait for a pullback before you pull the trigger. So what in the world does Jack Henry even do? And how the heck has it stopped in such a juggernaut without getting much attention? Okay, this is a company that uses technology to help banks, to help credit unions, and other financial institutions process transactions, automate their businesses, and generally stay ahead of the competition by managing mission-critical information. Originally, Jack Henry was all about making off-the-shelf banking software. That was way back in the 70s. Now they're the primary technology partner for roughly 1,900 banks, from smaller community institutions to mid-tier regional players. At the same time, the company's got a data processing business, Scimitar, which is the system of choice for credit unions. I cannot stress enough just how important this financial technology business has become. The banks, big and small, well, they're all about fighting for a bigger piece of the pie. They're all trying to operate more efficiently, and to do that, they need better software. And that's where Jack Henry comes in. Clearly, this company's been doing something right, because the stock has been near unstoppable. At the generational lows in early 2009, Jack Henry traded below 15 bucks. Now it's at $134. It's up 173% over the past five years, trouncing the 69% gain in the S&P 500 over the same period. It's gained nearly 30% over the last 12 months, and that includes a 15% rally since the beginning of 2018. The crazy thing is the consistency of this move. Jack Henry just keeps chugging higher and higher with only the occasional minor dip before getting right back on track. Bye, bye, bye! Why? A lot of the strength here comes from, well, just fabulous fundamentals. And I'll get to the numbers in a second. But there's a second factor at play here that needs to be addressed. Aside from yesterday's epic run in the banks, money managers have been incredibly hesitant to own actual financials of late. They're scared of the banks. They're scared. However, because so many of these funds may try to mimic the sector weightings of the S&P 500, that way you can never underperform the benchmark too badly, you got a lot of firms that need to own something financial, even as they refuse to own the banks. Hence the virtually mechanical appeal of the fintechs, as we call them. These are technology companies, but they're grouped with the financials because they sell to the financials. They give you that much-needed financial exposure without any credit risk or Fed-related worries. That's definitely part of Jack Henry's recent strength. However, there's also the fact that it's a very well-run company that happens to be firing on every single cylinder. Yeah, Jack Henry's got years of consistent growth behind it, and the company's taken market share left and right. The secret to their success? Jack Henry spends a lot of money on research and development. From 2012 through last year, the company shelled out anywhere from 10 to 14% of its non-hardware revenue on R&D. That's a staggering figure. And that investment has picked up substantially over the past couple of years. It's crucial. When you're a tech company, even fintech, you need to keep coming up with better and better products. You can't rest on your laurels. It's much easier to convince potential customers to dump the potential competition and switch to your software when you have best-in-class technology. Now, it's clear that all this spending is definitely paying off. Just look at the latest quarter. When Jack Henry reported in early May, it delivered a magnificent $0.07 earnings beat off of an $0.86 basis with higher-than-expected revenue to boot. The company posted 8.7% sales growth, accelerated revenue growth because the last one had been 7.5% and 4.3% in the one before that. Wow. Along with 20.8% earnings growth. What's driving these numbers? 
Jack Henry's payment division was on fire. Sales up 12% thanks to last year's acquisition of Incenta. That's a cloud-based online payments play. You know how much we love the cloud. Their complementary solutions biz, which includes a host of different technologies that help small banks go digital, that was up 11%. Scimitar, the data processing division, had a ton of new signups. So you put it all together. And this thing you never heard of, this Jack Henry, it's taken market share all over the place, especially with small banks and credit unions that are eagerly upgrading their technology in order to remain relevant. You know what? I've been thinking about this. I think also that Trump has helped. It turned, you know, look, Trump's administration's got a very laissez-faire approach to financial regulation. That makes it much easier for smaller banks to justify spending money on better software. At the same time, many of these banks are increasingly outsourcing parts of the business that Jack Henry is happy to help them with. Save a lot of money. Management mostly told us uh, their next quarter has, and I quote, started out very well, with the sales team looking like it's on track to exceed its full-year targets. Oh, and when they held their analyst meeting uh, the May, on May 7th, the company introduced some very rough guidance for 2019 that included better-than-expected revenue growth forecasts. All right, there are two things going on here. You got a clear pickup in Jack Henry's core business, hence the accelerated revenue growth, or ARG as we call it. At the same time, the company's quietly become more profitable as they upsell existing customers into all sorts of new products, including a new card processing solution. Last year, Jack Henry partnered with First Data, you know, that company's doing very well, big payments company, to create a new credit and debit card processing business. As of this morning, they've already brought 66 existing clients onto their system. This is basically a business they created out of whole cloth. I think it bodes well for Jack Henry's future, and they can step into a whole different area like payments and just start immediately gobbling up market share. But it's not just the business is good. It's also that Jack Henry, the stock, is safe. You don't need to worry about trade disputes, right? China, Europe means nothing. It's a nice, U.S.-focused financial technology stock, a non-bank financial that gives money managers the sector exposure they need without any interest rate risk. You know, I've been thinking about this ever since she called. It's almost as if the stock of Jack Henry was created for this very moment. So is the stock worth buying? My one concern here is expensive. Jack Henry trades at 33 times next year's earnings estimates. That's almost double the average stock. Although the valuation is a bit less daunting when you look out a couple of years, it sells for 26 times the consensus estimates for 2021. Still, I think it deserves that premium multiple. I like the company. I like the stock. Although, of course, I'd like to buy it on weakness. Bottom line, Jack Henry is a high-quality financial technology company, and I think it's absolutely worth owning, so long as you don't believe the bank stocks are going to come back into style anytime soon. That's the one thing that I know could absolutely derail the story. If the banks get their groove back and money managers start selling the fintechs in order to swap into the real financials, ooh, that could be trouble. While I believe in Jack Henry's long-term prospects, you might want to hold off buying this one until Friday when we start getting the big bank earnings reports. If they disappoint, then Jack Henry's your man. Tony in Massachusetts. Tony! Tony. Uh, hold it. You know what? I'm thinking about taking Sherry in Maryland. Sherry! She's there, Jim. Sherry? Hi, Jim. Hey, Who Sherry. How are you? Maryland. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. What's going on? Okay, hey, um, well, I wanted to say booyah from Annapolis, Maryland, home of the United States Naval Academy. Um, my question is about Lending Tree, ticker T-R-E-E. Of course, we Back know it well because Doug Lepp has been on the, the show many times, the CEO. How can I help? Yep. Well, I saw him back in 2016, and I took a position in the stock around the $70 to $80 price range. 
And then earlier this year, the stock hit a high of 404. Right. But nice. over the past few months, the price has been cut in half around the 220 range. And uh, my question is, with interest rates on the rise, I want your opinion on the stock. Should I buy more, sell, or hold? You've got a great gain. At least take out your uh, your cost basis. But this is a stock that deeply trades on mortgages, even though it shouldn't. I'm on every bank call, every housing call. Things are still good, but it doesn't matter. This stock is in the grips of higher mortgage rates, so I think you ought to take your gain. Let's go to Frank in Indiana. Frank! Jim, booyah, first of all. How are you, my friend? I am doing well. How about you, sir? Not too bad. Quick question for you. I've had BlackRock stock for the past 10, 11 years. I've noticed here within the past good little bit that uh, the stock's fluctuating quite a bit. Should I stay in or get out? Oh, boy, I tell you, I would actually buy more. I think Larry Fink's doing a remarkable job and plays right into the passive investment theme. Larry is you know, pretty much a certified genius. And I got to tell you, the stock isn't really that expensive. It sells at an average market multiple. I think that's insane. All right, even if you're not banking on the banks, you can believe in the fin- in the fintechs, okay? Not the fins, but the fintechs. More specifically, Jack Henry. That's if you want to jack up your portfolio. And thank you so much to our viewers. Wow, are they smart. Now, more mad money ahead. Drill, baby, drill. I'm cutting the, to the core of the energy market, my exclusive with Core Labs. You don't want to miss what he says about black gold. It was the talk of the floor of the stock exchange today. Then Trump made his SCOTUS pick. How could it impact your money? I'll reveal. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. As the price of oil keeps climbing, will big producers finally start spending boatloads of money to boost their production? Let's consider the case of Core Laboratories, the technologist of the oil service space. This company helps oil producers analyze rocks and fluids in their reservoirs, showing them the best places to drill. You'd think business would be good given this run in oil, but at the end of June, Core Lab pre-announced a surprise shortfall, citing delays in the recovery of international field development activity. The stock plunged 10% the next trading day. So should we be concerned? Luckily, we got to check in with David Demsher. He's the chairman and CEO of Core Laboratories as his company celebrated its 20-year anniversary at the NYSE this morning. Take a look. David, first, congratulations. 20 years right here on the exchange. Where was the stock 20 years ago versus now? 20 years ago today, Jim, we opened at around $13 a share, and today we're at $120 a share. Now, I know your company cares more about the stock price and returning capital than anybody in the industry. How does that record stack up against the competition? Well, if you look at other oil field service companies, in the past, they didn't pay attention to things like return on invested capital, free cash flow, buying back stock. They have become better stewards of their capital. And we'd like to think that they're following us, following in our footprints on that. We're very proud of that. Well, it's one of the reasons why I love you on Mad Money, because it's easy for our viewers to recognize it's apples to apples versus other companies and other industries, except for the OSX. Yes. Well, if you look, we always measure ourselves against the OSX. And the last, yeah, but the other guys don't care. Yeah. But the last 13 <laughs> out of 17 years, we've outperformed the OSX. So that's a badge of courage that we... Uh, we're probably. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, current conditions. You came out at the end of June and talked about how there are really kind of uh, what I regard as exceptionally, uh, 
this is my own view, not yours, short-sighted national oil companies, people aren't doing what they're supposed to do with oil in the 70s, right? Well, that is correct. And if you look at domestic activity here in the U.S., fabulous. Uh, All of our operations here in the U.S. are doing great. Internationally, year over year, activity levels only up 1%. This gives me great concern about what crude oil prices are going to do over the next couple of three years. In the past, we've chatted about where crude oil prices should be, supply and demand for sure. We've had a 1.5% growth in oil demand uh, over the last three years, where in the past 23 years, it's only been about 1%. So right now, we are seeing a big uptick in the amount of crude oil being used. My fear, Jim, is that when we go to later this year, into next year and 2020, we see $100 plus crude oil again. All right, now I want people to understand you do production enhancement, and a lot of that's been great in America, but this the recovery international field development, the recovery has not occurred. So you are actually in a position to talk about what happens to a well and to whole countries in terms of depletion. And if they don't start drilling, what do they have? Well, Jim, if you look at some of the decline curves around the world, they are increasing. If you look at Mexico, peak oil production at over 3 million barrels a day, today 1.8. If you look at Venezuela, again, about 3 million barrels a day, now down to about 1.4 million barrels a day. We're also seeing sharp declines in West Africa, Angola leading the, the pack there with Nigeria. So as we look around the globe, you've got to ask yourself over the next couple of three years, where is that supply going to come from? All right, we're going to have some supply come from the U.S., but if we look around the globe, it's going to be very limited. I see higher crude prices in the future for sure. And that's, again, because uh, there really can be no lid. The big nations, the national oil companies, are who can really make a difference, particularly with deep water drilling. Yeah, well, we think we're going to see over the next couple of years reinvestment back into deep water. Okay. You've got some big deposits there. If you look offshore uh, in South America, Guyana, you've got Exxon there that's had their eighth discovery. Uh, in their block there. You're looking at multi-billions of barrels of discovery there. We'll work there for the next 20 to 30 years for Exile. All right, let's talk a little more about what Core Labs does. Uh, Let's say you're in the Permian. This is an old field. Uh, We thought it was tapped out, but you, your company, has found a lot more oil for these companies. Incrementally, it does matter for their operating margins. Absolutely right, Jim. If you look at the Permian Basin, over a million wells drilled in the Permian Basin over the last 50 years. But now they're finding more oil than has ever been discovered in the Permian Basin. These are from the unconventional reservoirs, the shale reservoirs. And we specialize in telling them the quality of the shale that they're drilling into and what's the best way to recover the maximum amount of oil from those shells. A conventional field produces about 40% of its reserves naturally. A shale field right now only produces about 9% of its oil naturally. We have come up with technology that's going to increase that to maybe as much as 15% recovery. So look out over the next couple of years, you're going to be hearing a lot more about enhanced oil recovery from unconventional fields in the Permian Basin. We got a new uh, Supreme Court justice just appointed, very pro-business. We have a president's very pro-business, very pro-fossil fuel. Has it mattered for your customers? Uh, I think it has. If you look at their willingness to invest in this country for developing uh, oil and gas, I think that's been a very positive stance. One of the things that you had earlier mentioned, internationally, we're going to see money start to be deployed there as well. 
All right now, I want to make this point because it's not fair to your company. Despite the fact that at the end of June, you talked about these uh, uh, national oil companies not spending, you're still making your numbers, basically. You're still, you never stopped putting up the numbers. You never gave us the variability of boom bust that we got so often from oil entities. Yeah, we're a little disappointed. We would like to have higher international activity levels, and certainly our numbers would be better. Right. Uh, but you're right. We are always concentrated on making the guidance that we give to Wall Street and those numbers, particularly paying attention to, as we started out with this interview, return on invested capital, free cash flow, and then returning all of our free cash back to our investors in the form of either a dividend or share repurchase. And that's why we, everybody, have always liked Core Labs, because it's, it's a real company. It's not a company that's rolling dice trying to figure out whether you got you know, the oil or not. Jim, when we listed here, we had 86 million shares outstanding. Today, we have about 44 million shares outstanding. We've repurchased 42 million shares with our free cash flow and have paid a dividend, which is right now somewhere around 2%. So we have been great stewards of capital and returned that to our shareholders, and we've been rewarded with a very nice share price today of $120. Excellent. I want to thank David Dempster, Chairman and CEO of Core Labs. Congratulations getting your 20. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having us in Mad Money. It is time to have the light of a concern. It's about round five calls. One another senior star. It's about to buy some sisters. And then the light round's over. Are you ready? Ski daddy. Time for the light round. Players are my own with Dennis in Michigan. Dennis. Jim, a big booyah to you. Right back at you. What's going on? Thanks for taking my call and for all your advice. Much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, wondering about USCR. Thoughts? All right. United States Concrete. Look, Bill, Bill Sandbrook, I think, is a, a good man. But in the end, this stock was predicated upon an infrastructure bill being passed and has not been passed. And therefore, it's just one long-term downtrend. I think it's too cheap, but it needs infrastructure, Bill. Bob in Arizona. Bob. Hey, Jim. Uh, welcome. Thanks for taking my call of from the Valley of the Sun. I'm looking at Cracker Barrel. And uh, for the last two and a half years, it's kind of going up and down in about an 11 or 12-point range from its midpoint. Where do you see it's going? I think it's fine. I like Sonic more. I like Darden more. I actually like McDonald's more. I think all three are better than that. Let me throw in that I also would tell you that uh, it's been up and down because the fundamentals have been up and down, so therefore I prefer the others. Tony in Massachusetts. Tony. Hey, Jim, I got PayPal for you. What do you think? Oh, man. Come on. Dan Schultz doing a remarkable job. I think he's terrific. And you know what? You can buy it up to 98. Let's go to William in Florida. William. Why is GT performing so bad? Because it's got uh, competition from overseas. It's got some raw cost problems. And i got to tell you, it has been a terrible stock for decades. Let's go to uh, Jim in North Carolina. Jim. Hey, how are you doing, Jim? I am doing well. How about you? Good, thanks. Hey, I'm calling about a company, a lithium company, that's located here in Charlotte. The stock's down about 25% this year, and it's really stuck in a narrow trading range. The company's Albemarle, ALD. Oh, I think it's way overdone to the downside. I actually pick some up right here and then wait for the next quarter. I think it's going to be a good one. Let's go to Dave in West Virginia. Dave. Hey, Jim. How are you? I am doing real well. How about you? Hey, Jim. Let me, I'll ask you a question. I'm an employee of CSX, and I've been buying the stock for over 20 years on my 401k. Really well, the last two years, 
by and you roll some out and take a profit or No, no, Dave. I think the rails are terrific. CSX done well. I've got to hand it to you that you've been a buyer. Let me also tell you that I think that Union Pacific is in there buying stock back hand over fist. That one works too. And congratulations to Mr. Squires, who's also done a good job in Norfolk Southern. Let's go to Dale in Texas. Dale. Hey, booyah. Booyah. Oh, mystic. No oh, mystic of Wall Street. There you go. From Plano, Texas. Hey, we have ERC. I cannot Erickson. believe the comeback that that company has engineered. I got to tell you, I should have profiled. Once again, our viewers know so much. That stock is an up stock, and they're coming back. I would have normally said swap out of that to Cisco, but I like how they're doing. Let's go to Dave in Kansas. Dave. Booyah, Jim, from the nation's heartland and air capital city. Well, you were certainly there. What's up? What's up? I'm calling you. Um, would like some information on Geopark Limited. You know what? They They've got oil and they're drilling. Down. They've got oil and they're drilling, and I think it's a real good situation. That said, it's uh, it's one worth profiling because a lot, of, a lot of people do not talk about it. And it is a very good company. And that, ladies and gentlemen, inclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. What's so important about Judge Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump's pick for the Supreme Court? You're going to hear a lot about social issues, especially Roe v. Wade, and that's fair enough. Kennedy was a swing vote on this stuff. Kavanaugh will be a pure conservative. That's why the Republicans love him. Democrats hate him. And look, I, I don't want to be glib about this stuff. Kavanaugh's decision will affect a lot of people. But social issues don't really matter to the stock market. From a purely business perspective, this pick is all about rolling back regulations and preventing government agencies from becoming too powerful. When I read Kavanaugh's decision on, say, net neutrality or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or, or the Affordable Care Act, I see a jurist deeply suspicious of non-elected regulators who take sweeping actions that he thinks are well beyond their jurisdiction. In short, he's exactly the kind of judge that business people want to see on the Supreme Court. Whatever your own political views, whether you love regulation or you're some sort of, like, say, anarcho-capitalist who thinks it's totally unnecessary, corporate executives want two things. They want predictability and the ability to run their companies without undue interference from regulators whom they perceive have zero understanding of how business actually works in the real world. When I speak to CEOs and CFOs, they rarely comment on President Trump's daily pronouncements on foreign policy or immigration, Justice Department, or pending legislation. What they do talk about all the time is the day-to-day -day actions of federal agencies, which business people see as having almost limitless power and far too much discretion. Let me put it this way. The capitalist class strongly disliked President Obama because he created an environment where new rules were being promulgated almost daily. And then you had to figure out how agencies would enforce these rules. Even if you believe in heavy handed regulation, this is not the way to do it. Remember, companies crave certainty. So having the rules in flux is not helpful. Kavanaugh is going to give these businesses exactly what they want. He'll be viewed as a judge who keeps regulators on a short leash, strictly interpreting only what the Congress has asked him to do and nothing else. His approach will be soothing and comforting to business people who are concerned about government interference in the private sector. So what does it mean for the stock market? Short term means very little. I mean, we're talking about the Supreme Court here. It could take a generation for any of this to play out. That said, I think the Kavanaugh pick will make investors more willing to pay up for stocks over time, as there will now be five members of the court who reliably sing the same tune when it comes to the role of government and business. That gives executives the predictability they crave. For lack of a better term, this is a pro-business appointment. That's not a reason to go out today and buy stocks. But over the longer term, this pick does suggest a, a solid conservative block on the Supreme Court that will favor corporations over regulation and smaller government over bigger government. 
That creates a level of judicial certainty that I believe will make it easier to pick stocks, even if you hate the direction this court is going with every fiber of your being. I see you don't have to like it to profit from it. Look, in the end, there are a lot more important things in life than the stock market or business. If you're pro-choice, there's no way to accept Brett Kavanaugh with a smile on your face. But my job is to help you become a better investor. And purely in terms of the stock market, I think the pick is a subtle but long-lasting win. Stick with Kramer. That's the sound of the shorts getting crushed. Why? Because Frito-Lay delivered per PepsiCo. You know, it's funny. I think sometimes they should rename the company Frito-Lay in the same way I thought that Facebook should rename Instagram because this is really the big uh, driver of their earnings. You know, only 25% of their earnings come from North American beverage, which is what everybody's so fretting about. Maybe they ought to be thinking bigger picture and how well this part of the company is doing and how well Indra Nui did when everybody else, let's just say, when some of the bigger money managers gave up on our real bad call. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.